Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the wonderful world of venture capital, primarily focusing on investing and building consumer technology and physical good-related businesses. If you are a founder currently building a consumer-facing business, I also run a private newsletter where I share a bit of deal flow with folks in my network. Feel free to apply to be featured at consumervc.com slash startup. Our guests today are Vincent Diallo and Joseph Sotra, founding partners of Interlace Ventures. Interlace is a seed stage fund that invests in founders that are meaningfully reinventing commerce and retail for better consumption. We focus this conversation on their learnings and innovation when they both worked in China, opportunities in future retail they're focused on in the United States, and how we can make venture capital more inclusive. Without further ado, here's Vincent and Joseph. Vincent and Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you both? Hello, Mike. Thank you for having us. We're doing very well. Doing good. I mean, I'm under the sun of California, and it's a super enjoyable month of November here. And I'm under the rain in Brooklyn. So here we go. (laughs) We get both sides. (laughs) Oh, I didn't realize that you were in Brooklyn. Wow. Wow. So we're right now bi-coastal. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Bi-coastal fun. Yeah. So, both of you, what was your initial attraction to consumer and commerce innovation? It was quite, honestly, quite organic and perhaps lucky if you look at how this last year has gone by. But basically, we were both in China for quite a long time. I was there for five years. And Vincent can talk to it, but he was there for 10 years. And we were both in the consumer space there. So Vincent was the CFO of the largest distributor of food in China, which he successfully sold to a logistics company. And I was one heading finance for Asia Pacific for Evian, the, the water brand, and then managed strategic business dev for the brand for an extra two years and you know got very lucky in just working with Ding Dong, with Taobao, with uh, Didi, with Shuangfang, the last mile delivery company in China. And we experienced just the rise of WeChat and Tmall, which really completely unleashed e-commerce and online offline sort of relationship when it comes to how consumers are interacting with products, how they're looking for products, how they're discovering products. I don't know if you remember, Vincent, but I remember WeChat in 2011. It was just a messaging app with a small uh, dating feature dating feature on it where you could just launch a bottle 
to meet people. They called it launch a bottle in the ocean to meet people. And that's really how WeChat started, which was kind of fun. And then honestly, we landed in the US in 2015, 2016. And we were like, wait, what? I can't pay with my phone, you know? Before I left China in 2016, I would not walk around with a wallet anymore. It was honestly replaced by a double battery. So you'd be walking around with your phone in a double battery to ensure that you could pay and order your Uber, your DD, your, you know, pay in convenience stores, pay in restaurants. And yeah, so we're kind of shocked by how consumer and commerce innovation was here and threw ourselves in, in it to see how we could help um, the transformation. And I would, I would add on that, that um, we were also uh, looking for, I would say, a, a relevant approach to our new position of investors. And we clearly identified that neither the Silicon Valley or the Silicon Valley were in need of a new micro VC generalist. And so we had to specialize. We had to find a differentiation angle on top of having this pretty strong French accent. Uh, we, we had to find something very, very, very neat. And it became quite logical because that we had to focus on, on commerce technology and retail technology. Why? Because that's the space that we know the best. We've been, again, working in the space for so long, and uh, we had the community, we had the access, we had the understanding, and we did not see much positioning on the space and venture. And so we were like, oh, there's, there's an opportunity, and we, we fit for that. Come, like an alignment of stars. So as Joseph said, quite organic, but also super uh, meaningful and logical and impactful, I think. That's what's come together today and make us here. No, that's really cool. That's really cool. What I really appreciate about that both, but I really, really liked what you said, Joe, about how the wallet was replaced with a battery in order to make sure that your phone is always online and always charged. So that is really interesting. So what was the process? I know you both, Joe, you worked in China for five years. Vincent, you've been in China for 10 years. Why did you come to the US or what was the opportunity that you were seeing in the United States? So what happened is actually my former boss became super rich after we sold the company to a listed company. So he was basically in position of allocating assets and he decided to move to US after 20 years of China. He's French also. So he could choose another location. I think 20 years of China was long enough for him. So he decided to move to New York for a family reason. And on this basis, he called me one day, he said, come to see me in New York. We have to talk. And he basically proposed me to invest for him with a blank page. Kind of, a, I would say, a give back and also a sign of trust, a very strong sign of trust. And so I kind of accepted not really knowing where I was going. And I decided very quickly that I was in need of a, of a sparring partner here, a very strong uh, sparring partner who could, uh, who could challenge me, who could complete me, I could trust. I think the first day I went back to China after a 10 day trip, a little bit of New York, a little bit of San Francisco. Very first day I had lunch with Joe and I told him about this opportunity and proposed him to join because it was so logical for me. I mean, if I had to think about a friend I could trust from a business perspective on a, on a long term that came also with so many skills. I'm going to say it, Joe, because I know you're going to, going to say it. So Joe is a real Swiss army knife. He's not only a, a very good strategist, he's a good business developer. He has experience in entrepreneurship, finance, but he's also a developer. He's actually, he has developed our whole tech stack at, uh, at Interlace. And so, I mean, it was really, really obvious. We also had the chance to meet uh, at the negotiation level. So I knew what was this business value and the way it was conducting business. And we were quite aligned on that, like thinking long-term and thinking win-win. So I proposed him around the launch and I think it took him five seconds to accept and, and check my hand. <laughs> so. Yeah, about five seconds. And I was like, all right, I'm in. And when do you need me there? And that's when the whole adventure really started. 
to be honest. Like we both moved there. We started investing for this family office, did that for about three and a half years, had some you know successes along the way and just very naturally met a few families, a lot of executives in the space, a lot of entrepreneurs in the space that had been successful. And we really felt there was, you know, it's like, it's like a good product market fit. We really felt there was a fit in what we were doing and how we were talking about it. Mostly, honestly, from a corporate and a founder perspective, a little less on a VC side. Some We could hear some VCs saying, what, you're doing retail tech? You guys are crazy. That was three years ago. Like, you, you guys are insane. This is, what are you going to do? Like, sell cycles are crazy. And then obviously, this year has shown a little bit of a different view on the whole ecosystem. And, you know, we're lucky to have a couple of families just decide to back us. And that's, that's how we launched Inralize Ventures last year. And... You know, our LP base is composed of 80 plus percent super strategic families, entrepreneurs and executives that where we want to be commerce through and through, right? We want our LPs to be strategic. We want our portfolio to be commerce focused. We just want to be the in-between that creates the relationship sort of, you know, we call it NLAs that NLAs that whole, the whole ecosystem so that we create value. That's awesome. I love that. I love that story, especially that you just accepted in the first five seconds. That's great. That's great. One of the things I really wanted to focus on in our conversation that was actually part of the reason like I started this podcast in the first place was the innovation that's happening or has happened in China. I know you both have worked there for an extended periods. And I would love to just hear a few examples because I feel like when it comes to China, a lot of folks know that China is five, 10 years like ahead head of the United States and maybe the rest of the world when it comes to retail technology or commerce technology. But in terms of specific examples, it's kind of slowly rolling out. And so I would love just to hear maybe a few examples of some of these advanced technologies and how they compare to the United States. Maybe, Mike, before jumping to examples, I'd love to give a little bit context and background to this question because I'm, I'm, I'm actually passionate about that. The first point is there's a context in China that makes retail tech and, and retail quite advanced compared to what we can see in the West. And I would say there are two elements. The first one is probably this level of adoption of technology at, at the Chinese population level is because they embrace change very naturally. I mean, change and transformation is at the very core of the Chinese culture. It's actually even in the world culture in, in Chinese. And so a good example that I'd like to show here, to say here is that I, yeah, I, even five, six years ago, uh, when still living there, I saw some grandma trading stock on their mobile. When my, I think my parents are not even able to order Uber on their, on their mobile phone. So I was super, super impressed by that. And that shows the level of penetration that is throughout the generation and not just the super digital native uh, generation. That's a very strong element. And the second one is that you have also a certain concentration of, of forces in terms of market structure. I mean, you have a few super champion versus a very fragmented market that you can observe on the U.S. territory. So that, those are two fundamental changes that, of course, create, I would say, a context that is much more favorable for innovation and technology to scale. And so that's why you have incredible experience that are available there. And I want to highlight two of them, but I think they are quite known now. One is, I mean, Pinduoduo, everybody knows about it. I think any investor in the space now is looking for the equivalent in US, which is about group purchase and the capacity to leverage your community to have a much bigger impact and much bigger revenue uh, driven. So that's this group buying functionality existing on a messaging app. Huh? 
I mean, embedded on WeChat. That is one. Again, if anybody has a project that looks like that in the US, feel free to send it to us. We're definitely looking for one. <laughs> Another one that was kind of uh, striking for me, but it's also not that new. Let's say it's like three years old now. It's the supermarket chain Roma. Have you heard about that, Mike? You know Roma? No, I haven't actually. So Roma is this incredible experience when you select product and you can actually have this product that are taken away to the ceiling, to the sky and conveyed to the back of the store through conveyor belt. Wow. Right? <laughs> yes, I see you opening the eyes. Yes. And then all those bags are collected. All your purchases are collected into one single code. And of course, that's going to be delivered at your home, maybe before you make it home. Or at the same time, you make it home in a way that you don't have to carry your purchase throughout your shopping journey, maybe in the shopping mall or in the shopping street. So that's the kind of experience you can have in China. Honestly, I have some friends who arrived from China to, to San Francisco, went to Whole Foods, and at the moment to pay, they say, so you deliver it to me there, like supernaturally, right? <laughs> and they say, sorry, we don't do that here. And they were like, what? <laughs> you don't deliver my groceries at home in the next 30 minutes? What is this kind of service? So it's just to give you the level of experience that is expected then. And I skip all the screen and the digital and of course the, the leverage of mobile that is omnipresent in the Chinese experience. I mean, we're really on a in a current mobile first application there. That's definitely a, one of the big changes and big, big drivers. No, that's great. I mean, like, also, I think an important point, too, on China, that in terms of the adoption level rates are so high when it comes to technology, part of it, I believe, as well, is that you have a lot of folks in China, their first experience of the internet was on mobile, not on a laptop. So you actually have software that actually is mobile first, not desktop first, right? Not computer first. Yeah. And if you think about it, also from a payment perspective, you know, when you pay online, you pay through your phone. So you have to scan a QR code when you basically are on an e-commerce platform on a desktop. You basically, at the end, when you check out, scan a QR code on your desktop in order to pay and check out. And just what you said, I think there was leapfrog from you know having no device to having mobile first. And there's now billion plus penetration in China and everything is done for that. And it's also the fact that it's a cheap device, you know, really helped the penetration in tier three, tier four, and tier five cities, which is really what makes up, and we can talk about it in a second, you know, what can work and what cannot work in the US and China, but really what pushed a Pinduoduo, for example, was to these tier three and tier four cities. So one simple element that I forgot to mention is the power of video commerce that we're still also expecting to, to see in the uh, US. The penetration there is very, very important. And it's also explained by the fact that we just mentioned, I think it was 9% last year and expected to be 25% of e-commerce in 2020. And in US, I don't think we are close to 1%. What are some of the differences in the landscapes of the American market versus the Chinese market? And what do you think are some learnings from China that we could bring over to the United States and some maybe technologies that, you know what, maybe these will actually only work in the Chinese environment? Maybe to take an example, I'm not sure it's technology per se, like a specific type of technology, rather maybe an infrastructure that exists. But Vincent mentioned, we spent a lot of time looking at social commerce over the past year, where for us, by the way, social commerce is a little different from how it's framed in the US right now. I think here it's defined as how do you acquire customers from social media, such as Instagram and Facebook. We sort of take it from a different perspective. We define social commerce as a form of commerce-based interaction 
communication on social media or group experiences on e-commerce website, right? So really not looking at the acquisition piece, but how do you manage a community and help them group buy, help them purchase together, power communities for commerce. You know, while talking to um, maybe, you know, Sydney who heads up finance at ShopShop, we realized really something, which was the social infrastructure at scale doesn't exist here in the Western world. Pinduoduo was built on top of WeChat, which had scale in terms of how you can, so on Groobai, Pinduoduo is, is this Groobai perspective of social commerce, where you could just get scale in terms of how you were recruiting friends and friends of friends on buying all together. We don't really have here this infrastructure in order to grow. And that's one of the limitations that makes, for example, social commerce a little bit more difficult to expand at this moment. So I think that's a really interesting point. You know, how I think about WeChat, and again, I've only been to China for a week, and that was last year in Shanghai. And uh, I actually got to visit the Pinduoduo headquarters. We did a presentation for part of grad school to uh, Pinduoduo. And for folks that haven't been to China to understand WeChat, and correct me if I'm wrong, because Joe and Vincent are certainly the experts on this. But, you know, when it comes to communication and how we communicate, you know, we communicate probably in six to nine different apps or ways every day, whether that's email, text message, Slack, like all these various ways. And WeChat is almost like not the only way, but really the primary way in a huge sense that folks communicate in China. Like when I was talking with somebody and we try to exchange emails, it would not be exchanging emails. You would exchange your WeChat. You wouldn't exchange your email. So it almost replaces email in some way. Is that a fair way to describe WeChat? I think it's a fair way to describe it. You could describe it as your social OS for the consumer. That's the first application you open. That's where you find your news. That's when you discuss with your friends, with your colleagues. That's where you pay. That's where you get your insurance. That's where you pay your bills. That's where you book your trips. It's really your destination for your whole day, basically. And this way of sharing contacts, um, because the, the way it is done with WeChat, of course, you scan a QR code, as I described before. It was really funny to see it coming to US with Ding Ding, how much, like two years ago, three years ago, <laughs> when I was like, people were like, wow, this is really cool, scan me. <laughs> so, yeah, this is WeChat experience for the last, uh, I don't know, eight years. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting to see the time difference here. No, for sure, for sure. I think, you know, when you do have a platform that everyone uses, you don't have that fragmentation that you have here in the US in terms of all the different ways that we communicate and also gather information, we're actually able to build on top of it when it comes to social commerce in the example of Pindodo. So I understand that I know you're looking for social commerce companies, but I understand why it would be pretty challenging to actually start one here in the United States. Not to say that you can't. So what is headless commerce and how do you think about the software stack for e-commerce? So it's been on our radar for a while. And, and the reason why, if I, we sort of say that e the e-commerce experience is broken. If I use my good friend Safnaz, who's, who's an amazing angel investor, by the way, you should bring on, on this show, focuses on, on retail tech and anything D2C. She says that e-commerce is boring. I think she's right. You basically have two experiences in our mind. You basically have Amazon, which I tend to call the Walmart of online, super streamlined. Everything is white. You don't go there to have a great time. You go there to find cheap price. And then you have, if I sort of make it simple, all the DTC brands, which all look the same. They all look the same. They all feel the same. And one of the reasons they all look the same is they use the same infrastructure, the same monolithic infrastructure 
infrastructure. And what that means is that this infrastructure is built when you get it as a brand, you get it and it, you have to use every single component of it and you can't break it down into different experiences. And I think that's where brands and retailers are really forced to build their online shops with a, an infrastructure that lacks flexibility for designers to be super creative and for developers to be able to integrate what designers give them. And we think this is where headless commerce comes in. It's an infrastructure that's built in modules that can really be easily replaced with outside services, third-party services. So think about your inventory management, think about your product catalog. And that's integratable, this module, in an API form so that you can bring it to a lot of different environments, You know, whether it's your desktop, whether it's your mobile, the web mobile, whether it's your app, and everything integrated, whether it's VR tomorrow, whether it's AR tomorrow, and sort of brings it all into one place that's easily in the integratable. Uh, we obviously made an investment in this space called Commerce JS, awesome team, and you know we see it. It takes one to three days to build a unique, unique experience, and not months like you would do for Magento or for Shopify, where it requires hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to make your own experience. What's maybe an example, or if you have an example of maybe like a feature set or just a customization that you can't get on maybe a Magento or Shopify where it's kind of more cookie cutter to say the least? Yeah, so I think perfect question. What CommerceJS developed a feature product called Shoppable Campaigns. What Shoppable Campaigns is, it plugs into your existing stack and allows you to have a small dedicated e-commerce platform for a collaboration that you're doing, a new product that you're launching that's easy to build. So if I go back a little bit, you know, brands very often have collaborations, they have new product launches, they have new brands that they want to launch, but they want to launch it in a different way. They want to bring a different messaging to consumers. If they had to do that on their existing platforms, they would have to take months of dev in order to get there. What really helps on the shoppable campaigns is that you can build your dedicated e-commerce, and that's where Headless is interesting. You can build a dedicated platform in just a couple of days and link it to your existing backend stack so that you don't have to change anything on your existing infrastructure on your existing e-commerce platform and just have a dedicated tiny e-commerce store that's just linked to your backend. So you'd be like launching a new product and iterating on this new product very quickly without impacting the rest of your business line, right? And so launching on your social media, directing directly to this new platform while still keeping the existing platform that you have and just dedicating this small experience that you're building for this collaboration and a new brand. And rather, you know, and it took you just a day and a half to three days to actually make it happen and within your own experience. Got it. So, and of course, these, you know, experiences with the collaborations, typically collaborations don't last forever. So these are things that you can kind of do quite simply come and go as you as you do various different collaborations. That's right. No, that's helpful. Thank you. So walk me through a little bit about your due diligence process. What are some characteristics you'd like to see in founders? And talk to me a little bit about the stage at which you invest in. I'm going, I'm going to take this one. So the stage we invest, we pre-seed and seed. Meaning for us, it can be pre-launch, post-launch. I mean, we can definitely invest on a, just a slight deck. We don't have to see the product in action for, for example, a pre-seed investment. For a seed investment, we generally post-launch. So it 
a little bit different in terms of review point and review process. But if you go uh, in general, again, we have our internal tech stack, which is a kind of uh, a CRM on, on steroids. Is that, is that the right way you use, Joseph? Yeah. CRM on steroids, right? That's what you like to say. <laughs> so that's what we call actually internally, we call it third brain because that's kind of a brain extension for, for Joe and I. And now we share it with the team. And what it does basically it walks through the different stages of, of, of our review process. So it goes from a screening to a, let's say a first meeting, second meeting. Then we do additional research on the market or on the product. And we have, let's say, a team consensus, very important element for us to have an overall wow express at team level and when I say team is of course Joe and I and we're working with, with some analysts also and we want them to also be wow by the project and we love when they challenge us or they challenge the product or the conviction we have because uh, they're generally a little bit younger so they have a, a different text on the possibility of the products and they are very curious and probably more digital savvy than we are. So again, this consensus is really important. So when we reach that consensus and when Joe and I have both talked to the founder, we're generally in position to provide or join an existing term sheet. And upon the acceptance of the founder, then we will go through, I would say, a little bit more boring and legal uh, due diligence check, which is generally quite light at this level to make sure the company is incorporated. We need to make sure that we have a good understanding of the existing cap table or we need to have a little a picture of what's happening on the bank account. I mean, I'm a former auditor. That's how I started my career. And I would say that trust that does not exclude control. So that's the, I would say, the big version of the due diligence. Of course, at some point, we also involve our lawyer to, to review the all the paperwork and to make sure that everything is in order before we sign and do the wire. That's for the overall process. And more important uh, element and criteria that we review and to address is specifically your question around the characteristic that we like founders. I recently uh, made the exercise and actually defined five of them that are quite important. And I think this is what we, without having a very uh, clear checkbox for each of those, this is what we've been doing over the year. And Joe, feel free to uh, correct me or to add on top of it if I miss one or if I insist too much on one. One of the first one I would say is a founder market fit. We want to make sure that the person is relevant on the market thereafter. Ideally, a person may have a little bit of experience understanding the space and may have experienced the pain. That's always a plus because that shows a certain level of passion. At least that's a good driver for passion commitment when you really experience the pain and suffer from it. So that's strong element of the first criteria. The second one, yeah, we want to see grit. Grit over greed, put it this way. It's more important for us to be able to measure this energy to do and to deliver, to try to put things in action than just express a certain appetite for success and money, put it this way. And a lot of, uh, of course, defensive behavior, for example, on the valuation or an amount of, of investment or that would fall on the contrary. So definitely grit over greed, a really important element for us. Of course, we love to see people, and I'm going to enter uh, Three, two criteria that I borrowed from Justin Green at, at Forerunner. The first one being visionary founder. Visionary meaning that they express with a certain clarity of mind a vision that is appealing to us. I'm not saying that we have a thesis behind that that is aligned with what we hear. I'm talking about an explanation of a market evolution or a behavior observation that can be tackled with such or such product. And it's well, is well, again, well expressed, well defined, well argued. And 
I think we have an appetite for contrarian thinkers, people that can surprise us and probably uh, deliver a vision that is completely uh, unexpected versus followers, people that are trying to copy an, an existing project. Even though, again, somebody is copying Pindodo and is <laughs> doing it well, I'm quite interested in. <laughs> that would be for the, the third criteria. The second criteria that I'm borrowing from Kirsten Green beyond visionary is this notion of magnetism. And the way I'm trying to define it is their capacity to attract talent, to attract customer and to attract, of course, investors. Um, I mean, you, you have this kind of personality when you talk to them, you feel that you want to work with them because you're going to have a good time. So, I mean, a good time, I'm saying, it's going to be a great journey. It's, of course, going to be, uh, there'll be some moment that will be difficult, that's totally expected. <laughs> But at least there will be uh, this dimension of collaboration with trust and this resilience. And there won't be too many personal emotions coming in the middle of it. Everybody will be focused on their main objective. And at the same time, the subjective and personal element will be pleasant well. So I think it's quite subjective. It's quite personal. There's a lot of uh, intuition and affection that enters into account here. But that's an important element to be able to uh, perceive a certain uh, magnetism. Fifth criteria, and maybe before going there, I'm going to add this. The last criteria of Keston Green, discipline. <laughs> the discipline is really important. I mean, this is something that I think we grew with that. At least that's my big takeaway of my years in operation. Discipline is fundamental. It gives a pace and it gives um, a certain dynamic to the actual execution. So what I call discipline is, of course, delivering what you say, but also having a routine and respecting it. So we have this message for all our founders. We help them to go through a routine, a certain uh, manner management routine if they don't have. We suggest, of course, nothing is be imposed. And we, we have this requirement for ourselves. So Joe and I have daily calls, weekly calls, monthly calls that are set in our calendar and we, and we stick to it. And it's really, really important. And we love to see uh, this at, at founder level, like having a few set of metrics that you keep on following because you think that they express your priority at the moment and making sure that those metrics are moving in the right direction. And that sometimes you just raise your head, take a little bit of distance on what you've been doing in the, in the street view, take a plane view or a helicopter view and really look around and see, okay, this is what's happening and this is where I need to do a little bit more efforts. And this is something definitely that comes from my years of operation personally. And I really appreciate when a founder express this kind of practice. That's what I'm looking for. Last element, because I think it's critical. It's people that are somehow emotionally mature, that have a certain level of emotional intelligence. Meaning there that they're able to put aside their, their frustration and their both bad and good emotions to focus on what should be done and on the work that should be achieved and also on the way to uh, they should manage people. The point is creating a company or launching a new product, driving a new team, creating company culture. It's something that is really, really hard. There will be so many moments of frustration, uh, moments of doubt, some questions, some challenge. It requires not only a certain internal strength and certain conviction, but also a certain capacity to take the heat and take the, also the success and absorb it and being somehow equanimous, somehow constant, somehow constant in the way you address the problem. And yeah, consistent, systematic. And I think between two high-performing person, I mean, that same level of skill and maybe IQ, the, the big difference will may lie at, at EQ. And so we appreciate to see people that are, yeah, that have a sound in mind. It's also a good uh, stage for good communication because sometimes you have to face reality 
mean, it can be a little bit brutal. And if the person is on the defensive, it's not going to be constructive. So we need to have this kind of level of communication. It can be a little bit surprising. Maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's a little different take than the... I would say a sugar-coated uh, communication style that we observe sometimes in the Valley, at least. But it turned out to be uh, a good way also to establish strong connection and, and strong relationship. And these connections are fundamental down the road. We keep on saying to entrepreneurs at very early stage where they have a little bit of traction. They say you're on a very good deal and you have a lot of uh, interest from investors. And we're telling them, choose right to your investors in order to make sure that you're going on this journey with the right people. And yeah, so this emotional connection is really important down the road. This way. No, I mean, all these are great points. And I think in terms of the communication side too, I think it's especially important when things aren't going well, which there are always going to be bumps in the road on the journey that founders are overly communicating that to their investors well in advance. So nothing just gets like sprung up upon. Those are all excellent traits, Vincent. Thank you for sharing. I know that you uh, recently said that you put those five traits recently. I'm sure it was because of this episode. Right? It, was, it was a big long though. I'm joking. <laughs> totally joking. Totally joking. I think in terms of commerce tech, where we covered quite a few in terms of examples that you're highly focused on. It seems like in terms of your fund, you're pretty thesis or thematic, I like to say, not so much generalist. In order for you to get interested, does a company need to maybe match your thesis or what's your maybe process in terms of, like I've interviewed some investors where they actually write theses and then they go and try to match founders building the space that they're focused on and then other investors that are completely generalist that they don't even believe in trust. Friends, that that's not the investor's responsibility. It's the responsibility of the founder to bring that unique insight and what they're seeing to the investor. And then they kind of backtrack it and see how big of an opportunity this truly is. If that makes sense, I'd love to see just how you kind of fall in these two realms. Well, just very briefly, because of my very long answer before, again, we like contrarian ideas, but at the same time, we understand the space and the dynamics. So I would say our bullshit matter is quite acute in the space, but we love to be surprised. Yeah, I think it's also a matter of, of the stage that we're in. You know, once you get to A, B, then it makes sense to have a super thesis driven approach. If you're a vertical fund, like if you're a specialized fund. At our stage, it's a bit of both. You know, 60 or so percent of our deal flow is either direct or recommendations, close to 70. And then 30% is us within a um, specific thesis. That's what happened with Headless Commerce, just finding what we think is the right company. That makes a lot of sense in terms of that balance, I guess, of being opportunistic and letting the entrepreneur bring that insight to you and kind of being open to the unexpected, but at the same time, have kind of a clear idea in terms of the spaces you want to focus in and have views on. I know, Vincent, you're part of Black VC, and I'd love to just learn more about your involvement and the mission behind Black VC. Black VC is this, um, I would say, a very inspired nonprofit created in 2018 by Sylvia Sykes and Peter Gross, two active investors in the Silicon Valley who had this vision and, and realized that there was an issue of representation of the Black community in the venture space. And so they decided to uh, create this group and this nonprofit organization to find solutions to increase this representation of Black investors. And started in 2018, I just said that, right? How I became involved, I had a chance to meet sorry, uh, Frederick and, and, and Sydney through uh, the introduction of, uh, of another VC friend. And it resonated a lot with me because as I used to say, I'm used to say that I discovered that I was black when I arrived in the U.S. about five years ago, which is a big statement. I know probably that requires a whole podcast on that, so I'm not going to go there. Yeah, it resonated with some uh, identity question and also this 
constant envy to uh, to get involved with cause that I think are fair and charitable. So it was also a, a good way for me to meet a community and I found some friends and, and support and, and a lot of resources that I did not find before through my networking. So it's been a great family for me. And now I'm, uh, I'm the co-chair of event and community, which means for the time being mainly organizing events and co-organizing events. And I'm learning a lot this work i mean constant discovery how can vc change the diversity problem that it currently has on a bigger level make the higher do the wire like, like, like we say basically higher and wire i mean i do believe that uh, more black investors will be able to uh, be more sensitive to black founders message because it will resonate more and as a matter of fact investors invest in things that they understand better so it's not only worse for black people it's also worse for latin investors but also uh, women investors uh, but, but it's true there is true for the black community too so get more black investor get more latin investor get more women investor that's uh, be more black latin and, and women entrepreneurs that will have have access to capital that's one thing so higher and wire as simple as that we can see as much as our network as investors and our pattern you know we all say we have a pattern recognition but which makes the way we identify look at deals get deals you know always in the same way so obviously hiring meeting new communities being part of new communities and learning is the best way to make the ecosystem more diverse right there was a moment where it was like harvard stanford's now there's anything against that but there's a certain network in a community where deals are exchanged and i think as soon as you start bringing a little bit more diversity from whether it's race backgrounds or you know, country backgrounds or education background just helps bring different networks within your fund on how you look at where your deals come from. And I'd love to add something on that that is maybe specific to interlace. Really diversity is in our story. I mean, you heard we've been living in different countries and I'm not even go through Joseph's history because he's really been moving everywhere in the world. It's also in our DNA. We've been exposed to so many uh, so different cultures. So we're kind of learning how to address this question of diversity, inclusivity in U.S. And so we are building the tools to measure our unconscious bias and orient our effort and, yes, direct some of our decisions. Just wanted to highlight one point also that I have something that I love to say is that could not look like it because Joe is... <laughs> He's actually Caucasian with blue eyes, but between him and I, he's the real African because he grew up in Africa. <laughs> when my dad is from Burkina Faso and, I'm, and I belong to him somehow to the Fulani tribe, but I don't know much about Africa. So he's the real African in the team. <laughs> That's interesting. Also, like, funny that you say that. So my dad grew up actually in South Africa and my mom grew up in Zimbabwe. Oh, wow. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks so much again for your time. I really appreciate Joe and Vincent. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Mike. A lot of fun. It was the first time we do a podcast together. So we really loved it. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Vincent and Joseph on the show. Vincent and Joseph, thank you so much again. Highly recommend following me on Twitter at Vincent11D and Joe Sotra, both located in the show notes. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.